Hi, and welcome to the LEAP podcast. LEAP stands for Leadership Education for Asian Pacifics. I'm Linda Okutagawa, your co-host. And I'm Yana, your co-host for the LEAP podcast. Welcome to season three. Our theme this season is centered on identity within a leadership context and how we as Asian Americans, Native Hawaiians, and Pacific Islanders navigate the complexities of our worlds as leaders through the lens of identity. Our hope for all of you who are listening to us is that these conversations spark new ideas and you're able to apply them in your own life. Our next guest spent her childhood in post-independence India. Her graduate and doctoral education was in the U.S., and she had a globe-spanning career as an Asian arts scholar, president of a major cultural institution, and now she's a special advisor to the president of Columbia University and also a scholar at Columbia University. Dr. Vishaka Desai currently serves as the senior advisor for global affairs to President Lee Bollinger of Columbia University, department chair of the Committee on Global Thought, and is a senior research scholar in global studies at its School of International and Public Affairs. Prior to joining Columbia University, Dr. Desai held a variety of positions, culminating as the president of the Asia Society from 2004 to 2012. She's a noted scholar of Asian art and history. Dr. Desai is well known for her leadership in presenting contemporary Asian art to American audiences and in developing innovative approaches to the relationship between culture and foreign policy in India, China, and other Asian countries. However, what might not be seen is that she's an activist and an advocate for Asian Americans, for women, and for democracy. This plus her scholarly work and training in arts is seemingly so separate and misaligned just on the surface, kind of like our Asian and American identities, yet they come together so beautifully in who she is and how she observes the world and what could be possible. We're so pleased to have her as a guest today and to speak about these thoughts, these experiences. Vishaka, thank you so much for joining us. We're so pleased to have you. I also want to introduce my co-host, Dr. Yan Na. So pleased to also have her join us. Really excited. And nice to meet you, Yana. Nice to meet you. A lot of the questions that we want to talk with you about actually root from your book, World as Family, A Journey of Multi-Rooted Belongings. And when I was reading through it, it was just really, one, it gave me a chance to get to know you a little bit better. I've known you for a long time, and it just gave me this really interesting insight and um, just really not only an insight into you, but more of an understanding about, I would say, the kind of perspectives that you speak about too. And, and it just now all makes sense. And I want to really start with a question that you wrote about in your book. And this is really early in your childhood. And I thought it was really interesting where you spoke about your parents. And I got to say your mom and dad just sound like, you know, they were just really fascinating people. And you talked about the progressive and modern values of your parents and how that was also balanced with the traditional practices and values that your mom particularly brought, you know, to the family. And what I'd like to know is how did that influence your identity in your adulthood? I mean, clearly it influences you in childhood, but 
How did that also influence you in adulthood? First of all, let me just say it's a pleasure to talk with both of you. And as as I always say that I've been part of the Leap family for a long time, having been a board member. So anything you guys do, it's hard for me to say no to because I consider to be a member of the Leap family. And as you know from my book, The World is Family, once you're part of the family, you don't ever get away. And that is actually the truth. Mm-hmm. Um, so to go back to the book, um, one of the things that I have re- realized by writing the book, and it's a memoir, but it's a memoir with the one single question, which is what my students ask all the time. And that is, I do all this stuff called global. How did I get passionate about things global and worldly? And why is that? And where does that come from? So I thought, you know, they ask me all the time. They're the global natives. For them, the world is in their palm. And I, of a different generation, Mm -hmm. in fact, I'm old enough to be their grandmother, who (laughs) actually recognized that I actually became passionate about this, not just because I came to America at the age of 16 as a high school student, but it started at home. And what I have understood now is that one thing I learned about my parents, both of them freedom fighters in the Gandhian struggle, very, very important, but it was a different moment, different time, where actually they understood that it was not just about a political struggle, it was also a social liberation, and that it has to do with how do you create a new world without destroying the old? And that was one of the beauty of the Gandhian idea. And that was that you don't throw away the traditions you have, interrogate them, question them, but don't throw it away. And some friends of mine, since the book came out, including an Iranian-American friend who says that this is possible only because India is very much about a culture that's and, and. It doesn't ever think of things as oppositional. So that tradition doesn't stand in opposition to contemporary. Yes, you have to make adjustments, but adjustments are necessary rather than a head-on collision. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's what my parents actually talked about a lot, because my mother came from a very strong, very traditional religious family. My father from early on, was kind of a rebel, and he was rebelling against everything, was briefly a communist, wrote one of the first biography of Lenin in Gujarati at the age of 27. So, you know, he was a rebel rouser, but he was also a social leader. One thing that they did, because my father was in and out of the prison all the time, is to wrote long letters. And I had all these letters. And I realized that they had a lot of discussion about what to do with tradition. So my mother would say that, you know, if you throw everything away, for 5,000 years things have been built in, you actually won't make it stick. You have to make sure that things are part and parcel of how people understand themselves. Mm -hmm. My father would say, you can't put new wine in an old bottle. And then would go on to talk about, all right, I understand the difference 
between understanding our traditions, which is to go back to the Vedas, look at the Bhagavad Gita, look at actually the sources of tradition, but don't blindly accept everything that comes your way. And between that, they actually made some kind of an adjustment for themselves. And I think at the same time, my father never criticized my mother for having certain beliefs, and my mother never criticized my father. So we never actually heard them argue. They understood that both pieces were possible, and that's what they were trying to adjust. But mind you, you know, they had seven years to work this out together because they didn't get married until my mother was 31, my father was 33, which is really old by Indian standards, mm-hmm. even now, but especially yeah. then. They were from different castes. They had their own marriage. Uh, My mother wore the handspun cotton that my father had woven for her in Mm -hmm. the prison. Mm -hmm. Only flowers for all of our readers, listeners, who think about the big, fancy Indian wedding. Imagine a wedding with a thousand people showing up with actually nothing but water that was served to them. And she wore no jewelry, no fancy clothes. She never did. Never did wow. all her life. So they were radical in their own way, mm-hmm. even though the work that they set out to do was about adjustment. Mm-hmm. And it was not about always fighting as to who was right and who was wrong. Mm-hmm. To me, that is a crucial element of all of us who have bicultural existence is let's think about and, and not either or. So when I hear people constantly talk about, am I Asian? Am I American? The truth is we're both. Let's celebrate it. It's confusing. It's complicated. Mm -hmm. It's not entirely up to us. Sometimes we want to be seen one way. Others see you Mm -hmm. another way. But make sure you have the agency to Mm -hmm. actually hold both of those. And, you know, as you know, in the book, I often say that when people ask me, who are you? I said, well, it depends. Depends on the context. I have at least six different Mm -hmm. personalities. You know, sometimes (laughs) I am an Indian born in India. Sometimes Mm -hmm. I'm an American born in India. Sometimes I am an Asian of Indian descent. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I'm an American of Asian descent. And sometimes I'm just a girl from Ahmedabad who lives in New York. And sometimes I'm a New Yorker who actually is from Gujarat. I say this because it's actually contextually, it determines who I am and the language I speak. When I speak Gujarati in Ahmedabad, it's very different. When I speak with my family, it's very different from my giving a speech at the Asian Society to a thousand people to talk about Asia in the world. Each one of these are different dimensions of ourselves. So I actually refuse to get identity only defined by racial or cultural. It's also contextual. And anthropologists tell us that that's actually the case. We all have multiplicity built within us. Let's actually bring all of those multiplicity together to move that. And for me, that goes back to my childhood. I want to ask this question now because I I was going to save it, but I thought, you know what, just 
based on what you just said, I mean, the and and versus the either or. And I feel like that is such a common refrain in our communities, just in terms of we're either Asian or American or we're American or Indian or and not being allowed almost externally by I'm going to say society to be the and, but sometimes even within ourselves, we're not even sure if it's the, if we're the and versus the or. And when you speak to other Asian Americans, and and I would say this would probably go beyond just Asian Americans. You know, when you speak to people from across the globe who are either here or in other places and they have these, I'll say the, using the term from your book, the multi-rooted belongings, how do you help them to come to the kind of understanding that you have? And how does that also influence one from a leadership perspective too? I think that there are a couple of things about that, that I realized that of a certain age in my (laughs) early 70s. So it's a lifetime of experiences. And I will say that it isn't easy And it is sometimes confusing. And I write about that in the book. Sometimes wires get crossed. And this contextual sense of who you are gets confusing because context doesn't just stay within itself. Mm -hmm. So you were in India at your mother's side, but you're also the president of an institution Mm -hmm. and there is a demand on you and you have to get out of that milieu and behave in a very different way. Those things get confusing sometimes, Mm -hmm. and it is hard, but it does mean that you have to constantly be vigilant, and you have to also recognize that you do have agency. Mm -hmm. Agency in terms of not let others define you. So, for example, I give a story in the book about Richard Holbrook, who is my chair, an amazing, larger-than-life figure, um, and he says to the press, we are very proud to hire Vishaka Desai, not because she's a woman, not because she's the first Asian American, not because she comes from the culture, because all the previous presidents were all white men and had come from mm-hmm. the political international relations arena. Yeah. And he said, because she was the best candidate. So, you know, that was his way of saying this is gender neutral, culture neutral, we don't care. And I actually realized it didn't sit with me well. Mm-hmm. And I wondered why that was, because I knew he meant well. I knew he was trying to say that this is not a tokenism, this is not this, mm-hmm. that, or the other. And I actually said to him, you know, in private, not in public, because you don't say those things in public mm-hmm. to Richard Holbrook. And I said, please, don't ever say that again. And he said, mm-hmm. why? And I said, because the truth is, the fact that I'm a woman, I am of Indian origin, mm-hmm. I am an Asian American, I am a cultural expert, I will be a different president than mm-hmm. what has come before me. Mm-hmm. Because... All of those things are part of me. So don't deny those contexts by which I define myself as how I will become a leader. I am not going to fit a leadership model that's defined by somebody else. 
And since then, a lot of the things I talk about, about women leadership, mm-hmm. I keep saying, I really refuse to have just mm-hmm. a seat at the table. I want to change the shape of the table mm-hmm. because I will be a different kind of a leader. Yeah. And it should be acceptable to mm-hmm. be a different kind of leader. Mm-hmm. And that goes back to Asian Americans. Mm-hmm. I think that one of the things that is really worthwhile remembering is what late Wharton Gregorian, who was himself an immigrant, an Iranian-American. And he used to say that every single person of different colors, different cultures coming to America learns how to be American and changes, adds Mm. to what it means to be American. So you are not only accepting that you're going to become American, but in that process, you have an agency to redefine what America is, Mm -hmm. because that is the beauty of America. Mm -hmm. That is Mm -hmm. the strength of America. And don't let that take away from anybody take away from you. And I think that's the most important thing that we can all think about. And I think that for me, when I talk to younger people, Mm -hmm. what's very interesting is that especially Gen Z, and I teach now, you know, 20-year-old, 22-year-olds, all of them, and the global thought, the Committee on Global Thought that I run, is actually an incredible presidential initiative where we have 40 students from 26 different countries, many with binational identities. So the idea that they are all of one is, in fact, not very possible. Of course, we elect and invite and attract those people, right? So my favorite, for example, was last year a student who spoke perfect British English. She Mm -hmm. was English by birth, but her mother was Romanian. Her father is Indian. She was actually, sorry, she was born in Romania because her father had gone there for a medical degree. Mm -hmm. And she speaks Romanian, English, and Hindi, but Mm -hmm. she's also very English. So she's already saying, you know, I, I don't know how to define myself. Mm-hmm. For them, sometimes it's confusing too. Yeah. And so what we have to do for many, many young people, and there are millions of us, millions of us, hundreds of millions. Actually, mm-hmm. today, there are more people living in the world where they were not born in, the country mm-hmm. they were not born in. And that number is larger than the population of the United States in the world. Some of them perforce were forced to leave their country. Mm-hmm. Others have left for economic benefits. The truth is that for all of them, we need to create multiplicity of stories that mm-hmm. would make them feel that they were part of many different worlds and it's okay. In honor of Asian American Native Hawaiian Pacific Islander Heritage Month, LEAP is joining the Asian Pacific Fund and AAPI Data's Give in May campaign to raise awareness and funds. Donate today at giveinmay.org forward slash LEAP. That's giveinmay.org forward slash LEAP. Thank you. Vishaka, I wanted to go back to your book. 
And because you described it as a memoir, yet I think there's a memoir element, there's sort of a global element within there, and then there's your illustrative career is captured in that book. I was curious, with the kind of the intimate aspects of your life that you integrate into the book, like sharing that your husband disclosed that he has multiple personality disorder. I mean, these moments where it's very intimate, what was it like for you as an author as a scholar, to share these parts of you and who you are? Well, first of all, my husband had already published a book. Mm-hmm. So it was public. But more than that, it was really important for me to be really honest, to make sure that the personal and professional were absolutely intertwined in the story. Because I believe that whole of you is what makes you a person. And if you are a leader, that means, as Gandhi would say, my life is my work. So to some extent, I think that honesty was really necessary and reflection was necessary. Mm -hmm. Some people have said that I could have even been more open, uh, people who know me well. (laughs) And I feel that, you know, I really tried my best to be absolutely as transparent and honest as possible. To really, and at the same time, one of the things about a memoir is that you, of course, are choosing what you want to say. And for me, the through line was what are the elements that allowed me to move through this multi rootedness to the global? My argument was that all of us who embody multiplicity in ourselves, especially of cultures, mm-hmm. we have a possibility to create a larger sense of belonging. That agency is as important as negotiating two different identities. Hmm. My husband's story was a very important part of that. So when you think about helping young Asian Americans, and you talked about this idea of biculturalism and the and aspect of existing as a human, how do you help young Asian Americans who grow up sort of to reconcile these contradictory parts of who they are? Well, first of all, I take the word away, contradictory. Mm. Because I think that the minute you put that in oppositional element, uh, in a way, you are creating a sense of conflict. Yeah. So first is to embrace both. And that, therefore, you have a richness to your life that is far greater than many people. And at the same time, in the American context, Actually, we have not fully embraced the idea of multiplicity that is embedded in our culture. That is true for everybody, including Native Americans and African Americans, Mm -hmm. two communities that actually were forced to have to give up who they were. Mm -hmm. And I think we have to reclaim that and reclaim that in a way that actually makes it possible Because the voices that want to find America in a much narrower way are actually creating this tension that we have to rise above. Mm -hmm. So to some extent, as Michelle Obama has said, when they go low, you go up, Mm -hmm. you rise up. And part of it is to not just rise above, but you also have to say, you know what? This is the beauty of this place. It is a nation that is constantly in the process of being remade. And we Mm -hmm. have to own that there are many different parts of us 
And how do we actually yep. celebrate that rather than being defined as contradictory by others? Mm-hmm. And where does that contradiction come from? It's because some people are trying to define America in a particular way. And we have to refuse to abide by that. I love that um, you call that out, that it doesn't have to be contradictory parts. And language matters so much exactly. when we think about ourselves. Yeah. Great. Thank you. Are you still a dancer? Do you still identify as a dancer? You know, it's one of those things that I suppose people would say, once a dancer, always a dancer. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, for example, when I went to the Asia Society and apparently the big story was that there was there were some board members and staff and people were interviewing me. And this is before I became the president, when I became the director of the museum and then a VP of mm-hmm. Arts and Culture. And one woman who is a, a trustee had been there a long time and somebody asked her what she thought of me. And she said, you know what? I was so mesmerized by her hands that mm. I just couldn't remember what she was saying because clearly this is what is amazing about her. And so I said, I guess once a dancer, always a dancer. You know? <laughs> so it's true. Although I don't dance much anymore. I mean, mm-hmm. You know, I love to dance other kinds of dances, but I don't <laughs> dance, dance professionally. But I did for a very long time, even when I was in Boston as a curator. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. So you were still actually practicing the art then that you had grown up learning. In your book, you wrote about how dance also helps you as a leader. And I want to ask you, so how did or how does dance continue to identify or inform your identity as a leader, especially when it comes to transcending cross cultures? I think it's not just the dance, it's the arts in general. Mm-hmm. And what I have come to realize is that arts are a perfect petri dish, a perfect illustration of the notion of and and. Arts are by nature both a product of a particular place, particular time, a particular culture. Somebody somewhere made something. And they have a capacity to transcend that place and time to affect people over a life, over hundreds of years. So as you know, in the book, I talk about my experience with when I started as a museum educator, as a dancer. And to work with East Cleveland public school kids, African-American kids, for six weeks and getting them to really get excited about Indian art, Asian art. And at the end of six weeks, they're walking around in that space like they own those cultures, mm-hmm. that they actually were part of that culture mm-hmm. because they knew them. They knew they could talk to them. They could make stories about them. And I think that it's what I feel when I look at a late Rembrandt in the National Gallery, and I feel the humanity that he's managed to self-portrait, that he's managed to conduct at a time when he has no money, mm-hmm. is one of those beauties of human dimension of art that you can connect to. And that idea of being a product of a place and transcend a place and time and geography Mm-hmm. is a perfect way for us to think about how globality 
that we can embody or multiplicity that we can embody within ourselves. So to some extent, I realize that my passion for the arts, yes, it comes from my father who is very excited. Yes, it comes from the fact that I trained as a dancer when I was five years old and it was looking at the sculptures in our backyard and making up stories for them that got me going into another part of the world. Mm -hmm. It's what uh, Nassar Fisi, who wrote Reading in Lolita, talks about Republic of Imagination. And arts create a Republic of Imagination. It's beyond nationality, but it's also of a nationality, of a place. So that idea is, I think, if you embody that, you understand as a leader that all roads can lead to something, but they need not be exactly the same. That's great. Thank you so much. Art is an opportunity to pull differences together and also connect. Because as you were talking about that, I was thinking about sort of a web. You know, art could be that web that connects so many people. So in an interview on Good Day LA, you talked briefly about human beings and DNA. And specifically, you talked about, you know, we're fighting about the 3% that's different. Can you share with us what you meant by that? Well, I think that the truth is that about 99.9% of our DNA is the same everywhere. And yet it's that small 0.1% that's different, 1% Mm -hmm. that's different. And we give so much credence to the difference that we forget that, yes, the difference is important, but the difference also has to be taken in account of the similarity. And it's what I often say in the book also is that I feel that we talk about individual rights and individual freedom. Well, Mm -hmm. individual rights and individual freedom also have to be seen in the context of interdependence of Mm -hmm. responsibilities. And independence and interdependence are both Mm -hmm. part of human beings. Mm -hmm. And those two pieces must come together for us to survive as the species And interdependence goes not just to other human beings, but to nature. And I think that if we don't come to terms with that, we constantly are going to be in trouble, including in peril as far as the universe is concerned. So when I talk about that fight for the difference that we have and we kill each other for that, literally kill each other for that, we are doing it at the peril of our humanity, because we have much more in common than we do uh, in terms of differences. Vishaka, from where you sit, and you said you're in your 70s, um, you have a, a lifetime of wisdom behind you. From where you sit, what is something that we can all do to think about that piece of connecting with others, the interdependence and the independence? Like, what is one thing that we can do? Well, I do think that if you're a parent, mm-hmm. have your child read things that are about different experiences from different parts of the world. Actually open up their mind that if somebody is different, it doesn't mean good or bad, it's just different. And I felt that I learned that from my parents, especially my father. And I think that it was a value 
that you then will embody no matter where you go. And so that you learn to actually look at differences is not immediately about judgment, but about trying to understand why is it different and how is it different. Open up the space. So don't be too quick to make a judgment. The minute you make judgment, then it's very hard to walk back. Absolutely. Thank you. I love that. Thinking about just where the world is now, today, do you feel like it's easier said than done? And what then becomes the role of not just leaders, but everyday people to help promote and to facilitate that? I mean, I think that it is true. And I've done enough enough interviews with the book, especially the IR specialist who said, yeah, 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 it all sounds good. But you know what? It's kumbayaish. Look at the world. We're fighting no matter what. And uh, my argument is that I completely get that. The world is both half full and half empty. It may even be three quarters empty right now and one fourth full. How do I want to spend my time? I'd rather drop by drop make that glass fuller and not actually try to make it emptier. And to be able to do is to say, am I doing my part? in thinking about interdependence in relation to independence, partly because I do think the global challenges we have in front of us, COVID notwithstanding, environment, you know, the climate change, climate crisis doesn't know any borders. It affects anywhere, anybody, tornadoes, storms, big, big rains, complete droughts, everywhere. And we don't have a choice but to actually think about this. I mean, this is an existential crisis. And I feel we have to do our part no matter where we are. How do we teach our children? What do we do ourselves? And how do we look at people who are different from us? All of that is it starts at home. And then you can create a movement and you can then say, okay, I'm going to vote for people who are like that. I'm not going to vote for people who are doing this. And ultimately, it can go to a bigger level. I was just thinking there's so much intentionality behind how we need to behave, think and behave, right? You have to be mindful. Mm -hmm. You have to be intentional about what you're thinking about and how you're behaving. And that takes effort. And I think that's where sometimes we get stuck. I am a big, big believer that right now what we have lost is a chance for reflection. Mm -hmm. You can't get to intentionality if you don't reflect on what you've done or who you mm -hmm. are. Mm -hmm. And that is what makes us human. Yeah. I mean, in yeah. that sense, the Buddha was right. Yeah. And that is, you have this reasoning mind and you mm -hmm. have to use it. But we are not, we're so, we're like zombies, you know, sometimes. And we just have to take just a little break. It's not about mm -hmm. just smelling the roses but actually reflecting on who we are and what we do and how do we use it. If I was 25 years old still, I probably didn't think about that very much. And so I keep thinking now that the big job for teaching younger people is to take that moment, pause, reflect. Don't be too quick to judge. Don't be too quick to actually make assumptions so that 
you actually open up the space to hear. Mm-hmm. And one of the best part about teaching these students in global thought is because they come from everywhere and come from many different disciplines. They often mm-hmm. say that they learn from each other as much as they learn from the professors yeah. because yeah. the differences of their background become very evident. Mm-hmm. And yet they're all colleagues. They're all mm-hmm. sitting together. And to mm-hmm. me, that's one of the best parts of what I do now. Sounds amazing. It does. And it is. And I wish yes. more people could hear it. <laughs> I keep thinking about what would be the good channel, and your channel is as good as any. So there you are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I, I mean, I just think about, I was just thinking about what you're saying about being intentional, but about the reflection and taking that pause. And mm-hmm. I feel like we're in this world besides just, I think, globally and societally, what's happening in terms of, I'll just say, some more of the, the nationalistic, it's all about me, 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 to also this sense that everything has to be fast. It's, it's, let's rush. So what you said about don't be so quick to judge, to take that pause, to reflect, that seems like it's so fundamentally against globally anybody wants to do right now. It's almost like we lost three years during the pandemic. We have to catch up and now we just have to just go full force forward, right? Kind of in the tech sector, they have that philosophy of fail fast and then just keep fixing along the way. faster, but faster and shorter. So it's not just Twitter, it's TikTok. It is like long form journalism, forget it. You know, I think that people Mm -hmm. who read New Yorker or maybe people just like me, you know, other than that, because we lose that element of being lost in something. And that's also another kind of opening yourself to the world beyond yourself and how best to do that. Yeah. And I I was thinking about we're almost losing our ability to think critically about concepts and ideas. And so critically meaning, you know, like really sit and reflect and think about different options as it relates to that idea, because we're running so fast and we're always distracted. Again, going back to like, how can we think more critically? How can we continue to evolve society with our own ideas? Like, what can we do? Truth of the matter is that why do you think that meditation has become so popular? Why do we think, you know, for example, these Benedict monks' cabins in Washington, and they somebody gave them an idea, they had no money to actually rent out these cabins mm-hmm. to be free of noise, tech noise, or mm-hmm. anything else, quiet times, contemplative times. They're booked for years now. Now, what that tells you is that that urge is there somewhere, but we have not systematized it in our own social setting to allow for that. But the truth of the matter is the popularity itself, yoga, you know, all of that, it suggests that there is some need that people have. For example, these 15-minute meditation things Mm-hmm. are so popular now. It started in COVID and they continue to be popular, partly because people need some time, sometimes mm-hmm. because it's just too anxiety provoking otherwise. Mm-hmm. But we need to create that. What if it would be like if they did it in schools? Mm-hmm. What would it be like if we did it in colleges? Like quiet times. Just doesn't have to be more than five minutes, mm-hmm. but see what it looks like. 
Why don't we? <laughs> That's the question. Yeah, yeah. I know, but you know what's interesting is because all of these things are in the air, but nobody has actually taken the time to just put it into systems. Right. And so the truth is, I mean, we do that in our classes sometimes where we have a big class and we would just ask them to say, you know, just take five minutes, jot down your thoughts before mm-hmm. you do anything, then share it with the person next to you, not to a whole class. Mm-hmm. And all of these are really mechanisms to have a quiet time to mm-hmm. think, to write, to mm-hmm. actually put it on a piece of paper, then to share so that there is a process by which you develop your idea. Those things, we should almost put it in the context of why we do it, not right. just that this is a strategy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Vishaka, I'm thinking about what you've just been saying, and I want to perhaps bring it back to work that you did at the Asia Society, more so as a, I'm going to say it as an analogy, perhaps for what we're experiencing now today. And when you were at the Asia Society and when you first became president, I feel like you were almost the linchpin, the, you know, the, the essential key to driving a vision to bring the Asia Society into a new place. Before it was much more traditional Asian art, you brought in a, a very contemporary perspective that allowed more contemporary artists as well as Asian American artists to be included and brought in. And to me, it seems like this is an analogy for what you're speaking about, that there is this kind of traditional way of how things have been done, right? The systems haven't necessarily been built to include XYZ. And that to do so, that these things are in the air, you know, the needs are in the air, you said. And to me, that analogy is that the need for contemporary Asian art to be featured and acknowledged, contemporary Asian American artists to be featured and acknowledged. And I feel like that came from your experiences, your personal experiences of living, as you described, a a cultural in-betweenness. And what would be interesting is, from your perspective, both as a leader, but also, again, thinking about just anybody, what would you recommend we each continue to do or try to do to enact these small changes that can systemize, right? Because sometimes it just, like that Lao Tzu quote, right? A journey of a thousand miles starts with that first step. So what's those What's that first step? I would say that for me, the first step began with reflection. And that was through a question of a friend of mine who had started thinking about contemporary and modern Indian art in England. And we were at a conference and we talked about what it was like to have 20th century work by Tagore's very important family in India that was given to Boston. And it couldn't be in the Asian wing because it was only about pre-modern traditional art. And it went to the prints and drawing department and it sat there and nobody had actually seen it. And what made me realize is that I'm a product of Western art history in the sense of the Western tradition methodology. We were not studying 20th century art. And yet I had to ask myself, why not? What's going on? And then realizing that when I grew up 
in my own family, my father was looking at things that were ancient, that were modern. He was friends with the artists. So there was an ease with which the artistic practices were all coming together. Why didn't I question that? And then when I was asked to come to the Asian Society, I was ready to quit Museum Field and go into the academy entirely. And the first thing I said to the team, to the search committee was, I know on paper, I look like I'm a good match for you as a director of the museum, because I have a PhD in traditional art. I've done work in this. I'm in a museum curator, blah, blah, blah. But I really think that if you call yourself the Asia Society and you deal with contemporary politics, which Asia Society is a multidisciplinary institution, and you deal with the contemporary business and education, you talk about contemporary issues. I think that it is morally incumbent upon you to think about contemporary culture more than any other museum and that you have an opportunity because nobody else is doing it. Now, I went in because I was asked to go and I thought, okay, I'm not necessarily going to take this job, so I'm going to tell them exactly what I think. And I didn't worry about it. And lo and behold, they said, okay, please, you got to work for us. You know, I mean, I, and then I said, okay, then we're going to do this. Because then I had to get a buy-in. So what I'm trying to say is that it isn't just because I am who I am as a in-between person. This reflection could happen for anybody, anytime. Because even though I was an in-between person, here I was trained as an Asian art historian with a PhD from a distinguished university. And yet I had not questioned that before. I had accepted that whatever happened in the 20th century was at best derivative. It looked too much like Western art. It didn't have a uniqueness. All the usual rigmarole and, and kind of blasé generalizations we had all bought into. We didn't question it. We didn't ask, why do we think that? Why is it that the traditional stuff came to an end? What was that problem? What is the coloniality about that? And so therefore, and how can we not think of artists having agency? That if they choose to do something, they're choosing to do something. And how are they choosing to do it? That that's important too. So it opened up a whole set of questions. And then that meant that if I had the institutional position, I had both a perch and a responsibility to actually figure out how this is going to be systemic and change. And so somebody asked me in that early years about my theory of change. And I said, my theory of change was that I'm an inside subversive. I'm in it to change. And I also think that the change occurs not by having a fire that is a false log. And it's, you can just light it and it lights, it looks beautiful, and then it goes away. I'd rather have the charcoal fire that takes time, build each brisket at a time, and it lasts a much longer time. So my theory of change is my theory of light. And I feel that as leaders, we have to take the responsibility when the position is given to take both. The perch is an opportunity and responsibility means what are you going to do with it and how you're going to change. So if you believe that certain things need to happen systemically, and that's the other thing I would say is not good enough for me to be on the outside, bang on the 
door and say, do this, do that, do that. That's important, but easy. What's really hard is to figure out how to make the change happen and last, have it stick so that it's systemic. And even then you can't count on it, but you have to at least try it. Thank you. That was awesome. And what a way to bring our conversation to a close. And I think this is something that I'm just thinking that I want everybody to hear, to think about that responsibility, but starting first with that reflection and using whatever perch one has to take that responsibility to create that change, but change not for the sake of change, but change for the sake of making it so that it's sustainable and it, it can stick. And mm-hmm. obviously, I would also say that's going to help move us forward in a positive way. And I know that that could be defined in so many ways, but I, I think we, we all want what's best, right, for society and for the world and the planet, especially the planet. Absolutely, the planet. Yes. Otherwise, we don't exist. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Vishaka, as um, we wrap up, our readers can find your book on Amazon. Actually, go to the Columbia website, and you might Columbia even get website. a discount. And Columbia oh, right. University okay. Press is published by okay. them, and right. therefore they can go there. Also, my website has lots of interviews in many, many different arenas. If people want to read here, um, vishakadesai.com, that would be helpful too. But most importantly, I really want uh, to make sure that I'm helping you in the work that you want to promote And I really congratulate you in starting this podcast again. And let's hope that a lot more people can get involved in these kinds of conversations. So thank you for inviting me. Thank you. And that's a wrap. Thank you for joining Jan and I for this season three episode of the Leap podcast. Stay connected with Leap by joining Leap's mailing list at leap.org and follow us on Leap's social media on LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And if you really enjoyed this podcast, please donate to Leap. Thank you all for tuning in today. We look forward to being with you next time.